So I want to welcome everyone here. It's nice to see you this evening. <clears throat> and uh, we're continuing our journey into the Satipatthana Sutta, and we're on the third foundation, which is the exploration of the mind. We want to know how it's composed, what it's doing, what, what's it look like when you go in there, and uh, what can you expect from it. <laughs> and so we're going to sort of flush it out, see, see how and why it reacts the way it does, how it seems to create the perceptions it creates. And so how, how I'm going to be addressing this particular topic, I've started by looking at an underlying truth that I will reinforce a little tonight. And then I want to talk a little bit about uh, how desire tonight and aversion in my next talk uh, sets us up to perceive the mind in a particular way so that our perceptions follow in accordance with those patterns, those mental states. And then I'm going to bring forth just some more common mental states like the judging mind or the worried mind or all kinds of different distortions of mind and, and so that you can make this applicable to your everyday life in terms of how the mind uh, orients itself in different in different ways, in different alignments. And so I hope this early part may to some of you feel theoretical. I hope it doesn't because it's really an invitation. It's not theoretical to me. This is not, I didn't learn this from someone. I learned it from the direct perception of my own mind. And so as I speak about it, I encourage you to come into your own mind and see, first of all, if it resonates as true to you, not just assuming it's true because I'm saying it, but see if there's a resonance of truth. And then you can also often get a feeling for your own particular state as it's being described within the talk. And so there can be an experiential component, not just an intellectual component, to actually following a Dharma talk. In fact, the Buddha said one of the ways that insight arises is through listening to other people, and that's how that occurs. So a Dharma, isn't a pa Dharma listening isn't a passive activity. It's a very engaged activity where you're just not, you know, filing through your Dharma chapters to see if this one meets your acceptance or not. You're actually bringing in and embodying the experience that I'm trying to address. And the other, the other component of it is there's a sense of quiet rather than opinionation that I would like to encourage from people as they listen. And instead of of, uh, of sort of, well, X, Y, and Z said it better, or, you know, I don't agree with that. I don't know. Just listen. Just let it in. Just let it come into your system and let it rest in there. Let it take, have its own journey within the system. Sometimes uh, the kind of Dharma I'm espousing is, can be a little bit, um, confusing or even a little bit uh, anxiety provoking. If you don't, if you just allow it to come in and let it settle as it settles and questions may arise later so that you begin to engage that particular question in other activities or other expressions of your life. But don't uh, suspend your disbelief or your judgment and just let it come in and let it rest. There's this beautiful quality of rest and that allows a healing to take place uh, as impressions are received. 
That's really uh, what the word uh, homeostasis means, is as long as we're not actively trying to divide and, and take sides against something, the mind comes into a wholeness, comes into its own balance. That's also what meditation is about. Listening and meditation are very much aligned with one another. And so when we sit, you know, I was just thinking of this as we were sitting prior to this talk, and you know, you're, you're not, we're just sitting in wholeness. We're not forming opinions, or hopefully you're not spending your time in discursive thinking, uh, in trying to weigh in on some particular subject of importance to you. You're simply letting the whole array and the whole range and rift of, of activity in your mind just to settle on its own, to come to its own natural placement. And there's this beautiful sanity that is derived from that organic uh, release. And I just want to encourage people to understand meditation in terms of what we're promoting here, not promoting, but describing here in, ter in terms of wholeness of mind, that sense of wholeness where one image of the mind isn't in contradiction or isn't in argument or resistant to another image of the mind. Which is, as I mentioned, it's, it's the reason that we see the world as we see it. It's the reason that we take the world to be uh, separate and distinct from ourselves is because we take ourselves to be outside of the mind having a mental experience. Now, where are you? I mean, have you ever asked that question? If you're outside of the mind, please point to yourself. <laughs> I mean, you can't find it. You can't find yourself. <laughs> that might startle some of you. You have a sense that you're having the experience of a body, having the experience of the mind, that you or yourself are not in there, in the mind, or in the body somehow. You're, that's happening to you. Well, if it is, where are you? You should be around, lo locatable. But, of course, we can't find ourselves. Why? Because we are a mentation. We are a mental process that the mind is having. We are creating the sense of I from the very mental formations that we take to be the thing that's happening to us. Now, how did we lose that? We're, where did we go astray? <laughs> How did we get mixed up? How did wholeness become two-ness? I mean, I, I love cosmology, as some of you know, and in the universe, the universe in its magnificence sums to zero in terms of its milligrams, if it was weight of its substance, it sums to zero. And I've explained this in other lectures. I don't want to take the time tonight. But so does the mind. The mind is, it has, is its own universe. And it sums to zero as well. So if we're taking ourselves to be someone or taking something to be something, we are making more than what it is because it sums to zero. No, somebody's shaking their head. No, I don't. <laughs> just let it in. <laughs> Suspend it. Suspend the disbelief. It just 
Okay, so what does that mean? How can that be? How can that be? Let's just assume he's not lying to us. So how does, that, how does, how does this sense of wholeness that we sense when we're sitting, I mean, we're sitting and things are just quieting down on their own. They're coming to a balance on their own. They're coming to a, a sense of space, a sense of emptiness. Many of us feel the translucence of the mind when we're not in fully engaged in argument with the mind. It comes into this, it's, it becomes um, transparent in some way, lighter, spacious. Those are all what I mean by transparency. But when we're engaged and when we're our eyes open and we start perceiving <coughs> world out there and I'm in here, what happened? And that's where I want to bring us tonight. I want to encourage us to look at what happened. And in, in doing so, I want to merge the second noble truth with this talk. The second noble truth says, the first noble truth is that there is contraction and struggle and dissatisfaction and suffering in the world. And when we look at that, we see it self-inflicted. And when you look at the cause of why we create the pain for ourselves, you see it's because we have a, a movement, a mental formation of desire that seems to somehow create two from nothing. Okay, so let's look and see how two, two nothing equals two. It's very interesting because when <laughs> you go from you have two, that's what where everybody starts out with. And as people quiet, they begin to make the two one. It becomes unified. The vision becomes less uh, subject object, less diversified, less distinct and separate. And then the one, that's the intermediate step, is that two becomes one. Oneness is an intermediate step to freedom. Freedom is zero. And one, then, when properly understood, becomes zero. So we're essentially moving. The math in this is a little funny. <laughs> I was, uh, this is an aside, but I just feel like asides tonight, right? So I went to, uh, I went to a physics lecture uh, by Brian Green. He's a, uh, a mathematician and a very strong string theorists, theorist. And I just love that kind of stuff. I don't understand anything. But <laughs> any, everything he talked about was it had to have mathematical uh, formulation. It had to meet the strenuous rigor of mathematics. And he, his world was created from that justification. It, if it didn't mathematically find its resonance, its truth, then essentially wasn't true. Well, and he said, you know, I'm very willing to accept, you know, other possibilities, but I can't imagine a world in which mathematics wouldn't have a part. And so his formulation of the world was along the logic of mathematics. And for him then to test any outsider, outlier, it had to meet his mathematical principles, his formulations. But his mathematical principles and formulations formed the world through the mathematical justification that it held. 
So he could never prove anything that was outside of it because it wouldn't be allowed into his world through the mathematical screen that he placed in front of it. And we do the same thing. I'm not picking on him, for God's sake. He's probably as a refined thinker as you'll find. But when we look out through two, we have to keep proving the world as being two. You know, we won't allow it to be one. To, for it to be one and then zero, there are different principles that we have to operate under to allow that transition from two to one to zero. But if we don't allow those principles to come into us, we keep denying those principles because they don't meet the two equation of things, then the very way that we can change, we deny. Do you see? I don't know if you see. So this underlying principle is an exciting one to me because it shakes the boat. It says, okay, I mean, this can be done somewhat logically, and you say, okay, where am I? And when we look closely at our inward experience, we can't find any place to place ourselves except in the thoughts we have about ourselves and the feelings we have about ourselves. About ourselves, what does that mean about ourselves? It's a feeling period. It's a thought period. There's no about ourselves at all. And anywhere you look in your mind, you'll only find more mental phenomena. You won't find a conclusive entity that's dressed around that mental phenomena. You'll find images expressed from the mental phenomena that are locked in terms of memory banks, file cabinet, memory stored memory banks that make you think that you uh, were and have been and will be because memory holds that image of you having had this experience at this particular time, another experience another period of time, and probably having another experience later on. And so you put all those together and say, I lived here, was there, and did that, and will go there. But if you look at what is actually occurring in this moment, you can't find yourself, except in thought as an image, an emotion identified with, an attitude that has consistently, perhaps persistently been with you over time, and which you have now incarnated within in terms of it being the self-description of the image of me. But if you, we settle down and we just look, if there's just seeing from wholeness, Where is it? Where is it? I, I find that so interesting that these mathematicians or physicists can be so profound in one direction and so ignorant in another. All of us are. I don't. So what is this desire? How does it, how does it, what happens? We've already learned the basis on which desire has its founding foundation, and that was in feelings. Uh, by feelings, we don't mean emotions. Again, the second foundation is the foundation of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings, that every experience has a tone associated with it. And this tone draws us near because it's pleasant. It draws us near like a magnet would draw us near or it repels us because it's unpleasant, 
or we bypass it entirely because there's nothing special about it. And once, once that, that uh, mental tone expresses itself, the mind then starts breaking in two. It decides that what it can get from the feeling is better than what it can get from wholeness. Basically, in wholeness, it's just one of the parts. Indistinguishable in some ways and very kind of nonspecific and unimportant. In fact, zero. So it can come out now. It's got a feeling tone to sort of bare its teeth. And as it approaches the feeling tone, now where is the feeling tone? Feeling tone isn't outside, it's inside. Feeling tone is what I condition onto experience. It's not what the, the experience holds intrinsically. So if I'm giving it to an experience, that means that there's an inward jostling going on here. Information, raw information is coming through the sense doors. It's being organized. It's actually electrical bits, nerve impulses that are being organized into a coordinated world view. And then a feeling is placed upon that internally, conditioned feeling is placed upon the map that is created inwardly. And then the sense of I rises to the occasion and says, oh, I want to, let me just kind of bathe in this feeling tone. I'll, I'll kind of lounge around for a while and languish here. One part of the mind moving towards another part. As if it could do that. What it does, how it does that, is that it narrows its focus of attention away from the whole. So now awareness is caught up. No longer is it a panoramic awareness that sees the whole thing. Now it's narrowed to just the feeling tone. And as soon as that happens, the sense of wholeness is gone. And, I'm, and I arise in relationship to wanting more of the feeling tone. I arise, it's like two mirrors that are reflecting each other. Two mental formations arise together, just exactly like two mirrors, and they reflect endlessly for in, infinity out in that direction. The sense of the feeling of what I'm going to get and the eye that arises and what it wants to get from the feeling arise together. And with the arising of I comes the memory of all the times I've had such a similar feeling. So it feels as if I've had an experience of past with this feeling. And it was so good, of course I want this again. And so the sense of embodiment or the sense of three-dimensionality comes from the historical memory file that we have in relationship to what's the conditioning that's arising. And it feels so substantial. We take it to be so in the, we take the world to be substantial and we take ourselves to be as substantial within the world.
So desire then takes the feeling tone, and often the feeling tone isn't from an experience that it's actually having, it comes from a fantasy or an imaginative experience that it wants. So if it's cold in the room, then we have this momentary memory of it being warmer. It could be warmer. I know it could be warmer because I've experienced it being warmer before. And so it says warmer. So I, oh yeah, it could be warmer. And that seems like a reality that we could move towards. But it's not the reality at hand, it's the reality that we could move it towards. So a whole scenario comes up in an abstract world that has nothing to do with this one, has nothing to do with the wholeness, the truth of the wholeness, the awareness. It comes up in abstraction. It comes up as as something that the mind has derived from its own imagination. And then we give more reality to the imagination than to the actual temperature in the room. And then once we do that, we're not willing to put up with the temperature in the room. We're going to change it by God or we're going to complain about it. Because the reality that we have conjured up feels nicer, more pleasant. Because the memory tone, memory contains a feeling tone. And reality contains a feeling tone. And this one's unpleasant. It's cold or warm or whatever. And so in comparison, I'm not staying here. Only a fool would stay here. But how does this all happen? You see, it all happens because of ignorance, because we're not seeing what's happening. It's all blurred. It's, again, the, it's like looking out the side of a fast-moving car. It's just all blurred out there. But it kind of looks like gravel. You know, what was that lump? I don't know. But, we, you know, but, so we just, we just let it be kind of blurry. And it seems to fit us, and it gives me prominence. I was able to change the thermostat and get us all warm. It gives me control. It gives me location. Remember, where was I when I was a whole? I was part of the whole. I wasn't anything. <laughs> so now I've got, I've got some status. Right? And so I have to now define my world in terms of a continuation of that status. Are we taking this in? You know, because this is amazing. This is the actual way we, our life is formed from nothing. It's amazing. This universe is amazing in every aspect of it. And the mind's amazement is, wow. And to be able to journey and let the universe secrets unlock by actually seeing what's going on in there. The secrets of the mind are being revealed to us as we watch it. That's amazing. You'd think that there would be some locked door or something where you couldn't get in, but everything is available for us to see. If we want to see, we have to have the intention to see. You have to want to see. Which means what? That you will have come to an end. The, the desired world has a rub. And if you pay attention to the rub 
of the creation of the within the imagination in the way that we come out because you can't create two from nothing and expect that two to have a satisfactory life it's it's not on firm ground it's on it's dancing on clouds here and so there's going to be a rub which indicates its fallacy indicates that it's and so if we pay attention to the rub, which is what Buddhism is attempting to do, pay, just pay attention to where, where the rub is and you can begin to see where all of this takes you into a, the fallacy of it. And you just start sorting it out and say, well, God, that's not true and that's not true. And the assumption of me, where has that been? I have, I've been assuming it. Well, why haven't I ever found it? I mean, many times on a retreat, I'll, I'll be with somebody and they'll say, I don't understand all this selflessness. I said, well, okay, let's just sit together here. Now, let's just be quiet together and please join me in this moment, of, if you so wish, where you're not trying to find yourself, but you're just allowing homeostasis, the wholeness, to come in. So you're not, you know, i got to find myself because that's just the rub of self recreating the image but if you just let yourself fall back into the wholeness before you arose in clear distinction and then ask a very gentle question, what are you? Almost everyone looks perplexed, which is a good sign, not a bad sign. Perhaps a little confused and ultimately derive at some answer like, God, I don't know. Well, I always thought I knew. I mean, I thought I knew. But I don't really know. And that's as close as you'll ever come. Because you aren't to be found. see and it's that close it is literally that close so when the image of self is not seen within the entirety of the mind when it's seen when it's seen exclusive of the mind then it takes on a prominence that it doesn't deserve it becomes more than a mental formation and as long as we can keep those two things distinct then we can have the experience of the mind and we can keep our power. What, what, what is our power? Our power of choices available to us. Except the mind creates the hell in its pursuit of choices. Because reality doesn't present choices. Reality presents itself. And so at first it feels like an empowering 
position to be in to be able to choose A from B. I'd rather have limas than this. And those choices do come up in terms of the actual selection of one thing or other. But what doesn't come up is an alternative to the reality that's here. If it's this temperature, it's this temperature. But the mind is like, well, it's, it's an electric current, so it goes at the speed of light. And so it jumps immediately to the ideation and memory of a more pleasant time, because that's where it felt better. And so then it just starts creating speed of light quick. But to see that desire is a state of mind. It is a mental formation. And to come back into wholeness and see it in the place of wholeness, to see it as another mental formation, rather than for it, us to insert our identifying energy into the desire, rather to invest the whole of ourselves into the mental formation of desire as the entire statement of ourselves. The whole is never in a state of dissatisfaction. But to know that, there has to be wholeness. To ask what is the desire arising in brings us to that wholeness. What is it arising in? Because then we have a framed reference of presence and awareness around that wholeness. And you know you're getting very close to wholeness when there is presence being felt. Because the presence is used to be usurped by the force of the desire and the identification with the desire. But now that the desire doesn't play upon us with the same exacting force, that energy then goes into the presence, which is wholeness. And as soon as I lose myself in the desire, which is a programmed plan for getting what I want outside of what is actually occurring, so what is actually occurring is being dismissed and it's okay, then the future becomes more important than the present. And if your life in your life, the past and future is more important than the present, then you can see that state of suffering. And one of the maturing ways that people begin to recognize the beauty of their life and the maturity, maturing of a Dharma practitioner is that the present starts becoming more of a prize, this is said poorly, than thinking myself away from it. You really appreciate not moving from here. Because we've seen the tension associated with the movement.
We've seen the pain of unactualized desires. That the desire always has an expectation that isn't fulfilled. Or is met with an unmet expectation that it doesn't want. And so the corridor on which it travels is very narrow. There's a very narrow corridor for desire to be able to, and the more refined we come within our desire, the more narrow that corridor becomes. Our life becomes more cramped within what is acceptable and what isn't. The more we have our, our, the options available are not acceptable. And so if you're one, if you're a person that has that kind of tension, that everything has to be perfect, a perfectionist is one form of that, but most of us have almost a, a kind of uh, obsessive compulsiveness in us, not just those who are diagnosed, but all of us, which is just, just isn't acceptable. You know, the chair's too low, the chair's too high, the room's too this, the, it's, got, it's just all, it's, everything's agitating. And this leads to a kind of, of unsatisfactoriness that we carry with us into the future. It's, it's, it's as if we've strapped on a certain attitude from unmet desires and we carry them forward in our life and they, they contain a kind of, of uh, just a, a general uh, melancholy. They can be many things. One, they can be a sense of dullness because Many unmet desires just kind of leads to a kind of not trying anymore. A sort of sense of self-doubt in ourselves that life can ever be workable. Because our desires, our needs for life to be a certain way just haven't been met by the standards we imposed upon. And this kind of waking melancholy, which I think is part of the reason that depression is so dominant here in this culture now sadly, or kind of an anxiety that life won't turn out right, this kind of free-floating anxiety that many of us wake up with in the morning. We don't realize that it's our desire, the world of desiring has created this, this ongoing tied-in attitude. It's kind of in the background wherever we look. And of course, when we're feeling miserable through a lifetime of unmet desires, what you want to do is have desires met so that you won't have to feel so miserable. And so it puts more pressure to find an antidote to the unpleasantness that we carry with us. And the only way that we know to do that is to try to work that out in terms of finding a desire that can be met. And so there's more pressure, more focused energy on trying to meet desires. Exactly the wrong way, not really realizing that the reason we feel miserable is because of this lifetime need to have reality be what it has never and could never be. And it, it takes its toll on us. It takes its enormous toll on us. And so much of the activity, restlessness being one of those, where we're just I can't stay here because this isn't quite good enough. I need to go there. And just this kind of intense uh, inward contraction around 
the unpleasantness of any situation creates this sort of restless activity within us. Which, as I can perceive it from the youth, is now ratcheting up its, our intensity, which is really, you know, what we call multitasking, is really a restless energy in youth. I don't know what the, you see, it's got, a, it's got a Clyde. You feel it all going in a certain way, and then it's got to it's Clyde. It's got to just, there's got to be a, an absolute misery, a story of misery at the end of it, in order to get us to throw all this stuff away and say, wait a minute here, what about this flower? God, I've forgotten all about this. I've forgotten all about this. This happens to be a fake flower, so. <laughs> you can forget about that one. <laughs> it produces a discontented image of self. And many of us carry a discontented image of self because we are bombarded by desired images, desiring images throughout our life unfulfilled desired images could just wreak havoc on our homeostasis, on our wholeness. And we just think, well, you know, it's a market economy. That's What are we doing to ourselves? What are we doing to others? And it ultimately leads to a sense of uh, unworthiness that I've talked about many times. And we just think that's the state of affairs. It also leads to a kind of bitterness too, because many of our unmet desires kind of leave a feeling of inward complaint or jealousy or envy or judgment associated with it and a bitterness that forms and a kind of just a, a harshness of heart, a hard heart. It's because we're not even aware of what we carry with us. We are so unaware. We're so interested in getting out of the pain that we're in that we don't... We aren't willing to meet the pain we're in. All we want to do is get out of it. So give me a, a respite. And the only way I know to get out of it is to seek a pleasant sensation. But the payoff of desire is very strong. I get me, I get my choices, I get my central theme of fantasy. And... The more I chase desires, the less I feel insufficient in myself. As I get that desire met, there's a moment of respite from the pain I carry. And that keeps me going. And so we, when we start to understand, we start bringing our energy back in here. Let's just see. Let's just look at what a desire feels like in ourselves. Let's just look at it. Let's just see how the sense of eyes ar arises with this thing called desire. And it seems as if I'm having a desire. 
because I've now owned that state of mind as my own as two mirrors own each other's images. And the desire when it, how it invests, how it isolates something out of everything. It, from the whole comes one thing that is most important to it and cannot be satisfied unless that one thing is met. It objectifies the world. It makes something in it with exaggerated importance. Now, how do you get to? And it forces the world to be pursued instead of received. And in meditation, the word receptivity, it's, it's about just the opposite. We're no longer leaning into our minds. We're no longer leaning into the space. We're no longer forcing life to be a certain way. We're reaching back. We're allowing it to show itself, to be received. Why are we doing that? Because that's what it means to step out of desire and receive wholeness. It isn't a strategy. It isn't some kind of clever thing. It's, this is the way the view is formed. And can we see the desire as mental phenomena? Can we see it? And are we willing to persevere and to just, okay, I can feel this. I don't have to run on everything. Let me just take a desire and not... I did that very early on. I took chocolate, which was my big thing. I put it on the dashboard of my car, and I would drive around as a hospice thing, and I'd have this piece of chocolate in my thing. And I'd, oh, I really want that. <laughs> I just watched all that stuff taking, transpiring, just because I wanted to know what it was, what it... <laughs> to understand desire, not to be enslaved to it. To start seeing the story around desire and how when memory comes in and the story proliferates from that memory, because it extracts not only what it has been in relationship to it, but what it could be, the possibility, the potentiality. And, there, and the water on oil just like that. But never forgetting that seeing the whole is the practice. And the whole is more than the sum of the parts. The whole is presence. The parts change. They were only parts when they were seen as parts. When the whole is the whole, they're no, they come back to emptiness, zero. And the energy that was infused in making them parts now is infused in making presence, awareness. Same energy but a whole different dimension from which that energy now can bloom and prosper. You see? Not so difficult. Not so difficult to understand. But there's work to do. You have to understand where we're losing our footing, where we're giving ourselves away, where we're making assumptions that are false, that are based on just not willing to see. The Buddha said, the willingness to see is, the, the, the willingness not to see is deliberate. You're deliberately deciding not to see. 
Nobody's doing this to us. We would rather hold on to the payoff of pursuing desire than, the, than to meet the pain of seeing what is actually taking transpiring here. So to say, is our aliveness diminished or enhanced in the presence or absence of anything? I love that one. No matter what situation you improve to yourself, I'm, I'm impatient with it. I've got to move on to something else. Well, when you move on to something else, you'll be more alive, right? More alive than you are now. Now it's just a, a waiting to be alive till then. So prove to yourself that you're fully alive now in the waiting for that then to transpire. Prove it. Waiting for the bus. Damn, where's that bus? God damn bus. It doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> it doesn't. It does not get any better. No experience is being denied or supported in practice. None. And that is true contentment. Because the investment in any experience is just to fracture the whole into separate parts and into our own misery. Thank you. Can we just sit for a minute or two? So how do you sit now? Do you also see, and I want to just nudge you just a little bit forward here. If you create a scenario in which you're not okay and need something in your practice to make you more complete, how that is pursuing a desire and therefore fractured, fracturing the mind from its wholeness, you think that that fracture will somehow be resolved. But all you'll do is find the desired object you will not understand how you created the fracture in the first place. And therefore, the fracture will just lead to further fractures. It's a now or never experience meditation. It either ends here or it never ends. So let it end.
So if there are any comments or questions, I'd be happy to. Yes. Yeah, so how do you relate to wholeness when you're in an unpleasant or pleasant situation? It's, it's always the same. There, is there awareness of what the actions are based upon? Can you see unpleasant? doesn't mean you don't get up and turn up the heat. I'm not, su- I'm not suggesting that effective actions to counter you know, poor conditions isn't the right thing to do. But you're, but you're ahead of the game when you perceive the heat needs to be turned up and that this is not acceptable. You are no longer founded in reality. You are at, the heat is now up in your mind and the rea- this reality is not worth paying attention to. And so you've lost any contact or connection with what's actually transpiring, do you see? To know what's transpiring, you need to know what's motivating you to move. And you can't just skip a few, you know, a few spots and then land. What you have to do, okay, so this is unpleasant. Oh, I'm feeling, this is very unpleasant. The temperature in this room is unpleasant. First of all, acknowledging that wakes you to the fact of it. There also, it's not such an isolated Definition: I may be unpleasant, but everybody else in the room may be very pleasant in this. So I don't just act in accordance with my selfish desire, I, which I would if I'm just acting from my own pleasant, unpleasantness. I kind of take it in and look at other people. Are they wearing coats? Or, you know, I just you, you look at it in more in context. You see? And then you say, well, I can deal with this. Nobody else seems to be unpleasant. So okay, okay, fine. It's just, just the way it is. And then that's it. That's the end of it. Or somebody says, yeah, wait, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so let's figure out. But we're always moving from a stability of reality. It's not confusing. It's not in conflict with anything because it's always based upon what is actually here. And that's an end in itself. That's enough. It can always be enough or we can modify it so that people are more comfortable. Yes. The two. The two? Uh, who are you talking to? You. Oh. There, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty obvious when you see it, <laughs> right? So it's it's the fact that we take ourselves to be here, and everything else is out there, and we just. It's not just everything in a big lump, it's multiplicity. And each multipli- everything it, it has its own shape in accordance with my invitation for it to own that shape. See, this whole thing is arranged mentally. That's what we don't understand. We think it's actually the truth of reality is that it takes this shape, but it's all arranged in here according to our, our conditioning, really. We see what we want to see. We see what we have conditioned our preference to see. Right? I mean, if you're, 
I mean, you can see it in an obvious way. When you're hungry, you're, what you're conditioned to see is anything related to food and miss everything else. When you're an individual, what you're conditioned to see is multiple, multiple things, is other things in isolation that reaffirm your own position within that multiple, right? So that's what you're conditioned to see, to look for. And even though it's not there in fact, in reality, we make it that way by the way we organize each and everything. See, and so how does that get organized is through desire and fear. Right? So it's a very, it's a, just to question this thing. Well, okay, so is this perception true? I don't know, Let's just start out very simple, okay, I've heard this story, I've heard this side, my eyes say one thing. I don't know, it's confusing to me. But each of us have a sense, because if it isn't true, then there means there's something in us that is also a part of everything. Because if we're, if we're assuming, or if we're stepping out of something, we're stepping out of it fictitiously, something that we cannot possibly step out of, either things are together or they're not. If things are together, I'm also part of that togetherness, right? So there's a part of us that knows the truth that we are a part of things. And there's a part of us who refuses to acknowledge that truth. But those of you who listen to the Dharma are reinforcing the part of you that knows that you're not what your perceptions indicate you are. And the more you're willing to reinforce that, the more you're willing to look in the direction that that pole takes you, the less certainty you have of the assumptions you've made about life prior to that. And the more things start making sense to you in, because now you're bringing in an alignment with the deepest resonance within you and that resonance is for life to know itself, for zero to meet zero, for the... Okay, all, that's enough for tonight. <laughs>